On this episode of Twill, Gen2 Linux is on the show with some very unexpected changes. Mozilla has released a new version of Firefox, including dev packages for those non-Snap users out there. Ethical hacking distro ParadoS has a new version out. Plus, we've got a lot of gaming news from Valve, Lutris, and many more. All of this and so much more coming up on this episode of This Week in Linux, your source for Linux. Good news. This episode of Twill is sponsored by Collide. More on them later. Mozilla has announced the latest release of their open source web browser, Firefox, with Firefox 1.22. Firefox is my daily driver. It's my favorite browser. I use it all the time, and I've been using it for years. I don't even remember what I used before it. It's been that long. Probably IE at some point because it was the only option. Who knows? Uh, anyway, so Firefox 122 adds a lot of new features and improvements, with one being like the big thing to talk about, although they buried it in their release notes, so I'm going to bury it in the segment. <laughs> Firefox now displays images and descriptions for search suggestions when provided by the search engine. The translation feature has received an improvement for the quality of translated web pages, and they've also made some improvements to the line-breaking rules of the web content, now matching Unicode standard. But the big thing that they also buried is that Firefox now ships with their own dev packages and repository. For Linux users who are using Ubuntu, Debian, Linux Mint, Elementary, Zorin, etc., Ubuntu and Debian derivatives. They also took the time to write a blog post about the four reasons why you would want to use these new dev packages. And it's kind of funny because the first two have nothing to do with the dev packages. And also, really none of them do. <laughs> like If you think about it, they have the adaptable to fit your needs reason, which is number one which doesn't make any sense at all because the dev packages uh, are not the only thing talking about in this particular section. They're also talking about the tarball. They also talk about the snaps and the flat packs. So it's adaptable because they make multiple packages, which isn't a reason to use the devs at all. The next one is 100% built by Mozilla, which is kind of funny because it has nothing to do with just because it's not the only thing. The snaps and the flat pack and the tarball are also all made by Mozilla, so that's not a reason to use the dev packages. And then the next one, maybe better performance. They said that we built Firefox with advanced compiler-based optimizations. We don't know what performance there is better in terms of snaps versus the devs versus the flat packs versus the tarball. They didn't have any benchmarks or anything, so I don't really know if that is the case, but uh, that's a fair one. So, so far, one out of three. And then the fourth one is faster updates. I don't really know what's faster about it because the Debs and the flat packs and the snaps and the tarballs can all be updated fairly fast, like the same, uh, roughly the same, basically. So uh, I guess it's faster than the core packages, maybe. Anyway, I love Firefox. It is my daily driver. Like I said, that those that article is not great. But I have a theory about why they decided to do this all of the sudden. Maybe thinking, well, because they wanted to make these packages and they just want to make it for the Linux platform. Well, they've supported Linux in the way of like a tarball or tar.gz binary for years and years and years. I have no idea how long. I'm pretty sure if not all of the time existed of Firefox, at least most of the time that Firefox has existed. But I think this is related to snaps because there's a lot of people who are anti-snap. 
And when Mozilla was only offering a snap in the Ubuntu uh, platform, a lot of people were annoyed by that. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think the snaps as a format have some pros and some cons, just like everything. But I do think that it is an interesting thing that it decided to finally make dev packages when they haven't ever before, which I think is related to the snap thing. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong because it is sort of odd that they've never packaged for devs or RPMs or anything else. And now all of a sudden they are. So that's just my theory that it relates to that because they are the maintainers of the flat pack and the snap. So it, why are they choosing to do the devs now when they used to not do it, arguably because of the uh, development requirements involved to be able to make these packages when they're already doing other packages. And now that they're even doing more, they've decided to add devs after not doing it for almost 20 years. I don't know. I just think it's interesting that they decided to add this and I'm curious why you think they added it. And if you agree with me, it's related to the Snap thing. And also, what's your opinion on Snaps? And if you're curious about my opinion, be sure to check out the next episode of Destination Linux, where we're going to be talking about the controversial topic of Snaps on the next DL with Destination Linux 356. And if you watch this after that episode comes out, we'll have a link in the show notes for you to check that out. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Mozilla Firefox, as always, links in the show notes. Gentoo is in the news this week because they posted a blog post of a 2023 retrospective. So let's talk about the big changes that happened with Gentoo in 2023. And some of these changes are huge. So first, let's talk about the fact that they have been doing a lot of work for their wiki and they have worked on their modern C initiative. They've revived support for the DEC Alpha architecture, expanded their muscle libc support for MIPS and M68K architectures. Uh, they've improved their Microsoft.NET packages. They began signing both in-tree and out-of-tree kernel modules, worked on unified kernel image support, and many, many other packaging improvements, as well as many other improvements in general. But there's two things I wanted to talk about. First, I want to talk about the wiki because the documentation on Gentoo Wiki is really good. There's a lot of times you'll find something that's super useful. And so sometimes some people talk about Arch Wiki a lot, but the Gentoo Wiki is also really good. Now, it used to be even better than the Arch Wiki, but unfortunately, many years ago, actually more than 10 years ago, they had a data loss, which lost the entire wiki. And that was uh, not good. So they have been trying to rebuild it. But it's a shame because the Gentoo Wiki was really good, really, really good back then. And also still really good now. So if you can't find the answer on the Arch Wiki, you might find it on the Gentoo Wiki. And if you are a regular user, well, then you could skip both of those and just you know use whatever distro you want and search on Google or whatever. But uh, let's talk about the next thing that I think is super interesting because I didn't, I didn't talk about it in this list. So I wanted to save it. And that is that Gentoo has pretty much shocked the Linux world when they announced that binary packages are now being offered. That's right. Gentoo has always been the poster child for a source-based Linux distro. And while it still is that technically, they decided to add binaries to the recipe. So for those who want to use Gentoo but want it in an easier and faster installation, that's now a thing. And these binaries come with packages for ARM64 and AMD64. And I felt it was about time I featured Gentoo on the show again because it's been many, many episodes. 
And now they say that they have these binaries into the points of 20 gigabytes of packages on their mirrors as of this week. So this is a big deal for the Gentoo project as a whole. And if you are ever interested in trying out Gentoo, it's now easier than it ever has been. So that's pretty awesome. And it's great to see Gentoo making some of these waves in both the wiki space and, of course, the change to adding binaries. And I have a feeling that Gentoo is going to get a lot more attention in 2024 thanks to these changes. And if you'd like to check out Gentoo or learn more about this news, you'll find links in the show notes. This week, Parixec announced the release of Parado-S 6.0, a Debian-based security-oriented Linux distro for ethical hacking and penetration testing. Now, this highlights of this release is that they've upgraded to Debian 12. Debian 12, including updating the kernel, because it's not using the base kernel of Debian. They're using the Linux kernel 6.5, which incorporates a lot of uh, Linux kernel improvements for hardware support and various things, as well as additional patches that they have done for network sniffing and injection, enhancing cybersecurity capabilities, and of course, better performance and native support for the latest AMD and Intel CPUs at the time of the 6.5 release. They've also added advanced DKMS and Wi-Fi drivers, which includes backports to uh, backported DKMS modules for the Linux kernel of 6.5, uh, covering extra Wi-Fi drivers for improved network analysis and the latest NVIDIA drivers for better hardware compatibility. Also, they have updated a lot of their pen testing tools. In fact, all of their pen testing tools have been updated, ensuring users have access to the latest methods and techniques. Also, experimental containerization for unsupported tools, uh, experimental feature that allows container containerizing tools not currently supported by the system, improving flexibility, which will also enable future versions of Parrot to bring in several tools that were either deprecated or dropped in the past, because now they can have it containerized instead, which is really, really cool. They've also switched the audio system from Pulse Audio to Pipewire, which is really nice to see because Pipewire is now the default audio system for a lot of distributions, and I hope it just keeps getting more and more. And uh, also they have support for the Raspberry Pi 5 now in Parrot OS 6.0. If you'd like to learn more about Parrot OS 6.0 or just Parrot OS in general, you'll find links in the show notes. Let's do something a little different. Instead of just talking about whatever I plan to, let's talk about whatever distro is currently ranked number one on the page hint rankings at DistroWatch. So let's go right now to distrowatch.com and check out, oh, okay, it's uh, MX Linux. So let's talk about MX Linux and what's new with their latest release of MX Linux 23.2 because it's at number one. That's I have to talk about it. So the latest release of MX Linux 23.2 has the Debian base upgraded from 12 uh, to 12.4 uh, and the upgraded the Pipewire version to Pipewire 1.0. Also, they have the options for a up-to-date kernel and the more standard kernel, which is the LTS kernel of 6.1, which is available in the Debian base. And that comes with the main additions for XFCE and Fluxbox. But you also can get the AHS version of MX Linux, which gives you the access to the kernel of 6.6, .6, and AHS is the uh, Advanced Hardware Support Edition of MX Linux. And for those who are not familiar with MX Linux, it is a Debian-based distribution that has a lot of custom tools and customizations overall, and they have additions for XFCE, KDE Plasma, Fluxbox, and more. Uh, also, they have Raspberry Pi edition for those who would like to put it on their Raspberry Pi. And uh, for those who are not aware, that opener to this topic was a, a joke. I knew it would be MX Linux at number one, so I, I did have everything planned. But I knew that because 
well, it's been number one for years. <laughs> Since 2018, MX Linux has been the top of the page hit rankings, and no one knows how they did that. I mean, DistroWatch page hit rankings list is not like a true ranking system. It just tells you which distro is getting more page hits on the DistroWatch website. But still, it is interesting that MMS Linux has, had been, has been at the top for so long. I'm very curious how they did it. And so far, no one knows. At least no one I've asked, asked was knows or is willing to tell me. <laughs> I have talked to people from MX Linux and they have not given me an answer how they did it. So maybe they just don't want to spill the beans, as it were. But uh, if you'd like to learn more about MX Linux and MX Linux 23.2, you'll find links in the show notes. Linux Mint has announced the release of their Edge ISO for Linux Mint 21.3. The Edge ISO is made for people whose hardware is too new to boot into Linux Mint's regular edition because that's using the 5.15 LTS kernel, which is pretty old. It's from 2022, and that comes by default in Linux Mint 21.x series, which is the reason they started making the Edge ISO. Now, as a clarification, Linux Mint's Edge ISO is not like a bleeding edge offering. The term edge suggests that it might be a bleeding edge version, but it's not. The Edge ISO is a 6.5 kernel from Linux, and the current kernel for it is 6.7. On a side note, I think the reason Mint Edge uses 6.5 is because Canonical did the work to backport 6.5 to 22.04 LTS, and Mint continues to rely heavily on Canonical for this sort of thing. Now, that's fine, of course. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. That's just why I think it's using 6.5 instead of something newer. If you'd like to check out the Edge ISO of Linux Mint or just learn more about it in general, you'll find links in the show notes. Let's talk about endpoint security. When you go through the airport, for example, there's a security line to check your ID and then another line to scan your bags. And the same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. And these days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of that equation where they check the user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all in some cases. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has a firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop could belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide solves this problem, this device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on your devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD or bring-your-own-device phone and laptop in your company. So visit thisweekinlinux.com slash collide to watch a demo and see how it works. That's thisweekinlinux.com slash K-O-L-I-D-E. OpenSUSE has published a blog post to clarify the purpose of the slow roll edition of their distro. This is because some people have assumed that this will be replacing Leap until last week's announcements of the next Leap, which made then people even more curious about what this is supposed to be. Now, to break it down quickly, they say that Leap, Tumbleweed, and Slow Roll are all meant to exist in parallel. They say that the idea behind Slow Roll is to offer a distribution that improves stability without losing access to new features in the base packages such as the kernel, desktop environments, and packaging. These slower update cycles allow for more extensive testing and validation of packages before their inclusion. They say, think of Slow Roll as more of a skip than a leap. 
I like that last thing. That's that's funny. Uh, but for more specifics, the Tumbleweed Pro, uh, Edition is a bleeding edge rolling release. Leap is the consistent edition where changes happen quite infrequently. And Slow Roll is a cutting edge release where it rolls but does so in a slower pace for those who aren't as comfortable with using Tumbleweed. I think the Slow Roll Edition is a very interesting thing because it offers like a hybrid of sorts, kind of like the best of both worlds. But since it is very new in development, we'll have to wait and see if that works out to be true over time. If you'd like to learn more about this news, you'll find links to the blog post in the show notes. The Bunsen Labs team have released a new version of their distribution of Linux, and it's a pretty boring release. Now, real quick, this is that's a joke, just to be clear. Their code name of this release is called Boron, Boron. And uh, if you say it in a certain way, it sounds like boring. So that's the joke. Plus, also, the pretty part is true because they did some nice visual updates to the distribution. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, anyway, just wanted to clarify that real quick until unless people didn't understand that, you know, that sort of thing. But for those who are unfamiliar with Bunsen Labs, it's a spiritual successor to the gone but not forgotten Crunchbang Linux distribution. So it uses OpenBox for the desktop experience, and it is a very lightweight distro based on Debian. So this release has upgraded the base to Debian 12 Bookworm, which means it has Linux 6.1 LTS kernel. And like I talked about the uh, improvements to the visual design, they've added rounded corners to the windows, they've added the Numix icon theme, and a dark mode theme, as well as many more things. Uh, they've also introduced a new utility in this release with the Bunsen-app-update-checker, which I'm sure you can never figure out what that does, so I'll, I'll break it down for you. It uh, checks for updates via apt. So it notifies users when there's package updates. However, this is not installed by default. You will have to manually install it from the welcome script on the first login if you would like to use it. Also, the Blob theme manager has been updated with more streamlined interface, improved wallpaper support, as well as the ability to save and restore GTK and icon themes separately. So if you'd like to check out the latest release of Bunsen Labs, which is pretty boron, then you can check out the links in the show notes. Valve has released a new version of Proton with Proton 8.0-5. They've added many more games, including support for Assassin's Creed Mirage. They've also added new HDR options on compatible hardware, such as the Steam Deck OLED or OLED. Now, the HDR is still in development as a whole on the Linux desktop, but it is awesome to see that Valve is already adding support for it, especially for those who have a Steam Deck with the OLED screen. Unlike slackers like myself, with just the regular original Steam Deck, it didn't have an OLED screen. Psh, lame. This release also adds various fixes for a wide variety of games like Winter 3, Halo Infinite, Hogwarts Legacy, Crisis 3, and more. There are even fixes in this release for specific desktop environments, which is great to see because it shows they're putting in so much effort to make every Linux distro and every Linux user have access to playing games that they want to play. And so we have fixes for Cinnamon users and XFCE users. And also we have a lot, a lot more. By the way, the joke about being lame was about me not having an OLED. Not that they didn't have OLED at the first time. That would be cool, but also... You get it. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Proton, you'll find links in the show notes. <laughs> the Lutris team has dropped a new version of their project with Lutris 0.5.16, which is packed with many updates and critical fixes. Now, it also has an, an improvements to the stability on Wayland while using high DBI gaming mice, which is really good for those who are playing games on Wayland and also for the future of the Linux desktop. 
And it also has several UI enhancements for this release. Now, for those unfamiliar with Lutris, Lutris helps you install and play video games from all eras and from most gaming systems by leveraging and combining existing emulators, engine re-implementations, compatibility layers, and other stuff. It gives you a central interface to also launch all of your games from one place. But Lutris is more than just a way to install and play some games. Lutris is a video game preservation platform aiming to keep your video game collection up and running for years to come. They say that over the years, video games have gone through many different hardware and software platforms. By offering the best software available to run your games, Lutris makes it easy to run all of your games old and new. And if there are any games you want to play that aren't on Steam, and even if they are because it does support Steam stuff, then check out Lutris because there is a high possibility that it will support whatever game you're trying to do. So I think Lutris will probably be able to help you with that. In fact, last week we talked about the Ruffle Project, which is the way to keep Flash games alive. And well, it turns out today I found out that Lutris supports Ruffle too. So there's that. If you'd like to check it out, you can find links in the show notes. The Godot engine is a very, very cool project. It is a free and open source game development engine designed to make it possible for game developers of any size to be able to make 2D and 3D video games. There's a little bit of a downside though, because the W4 Games, which is a company set up by some of the Godot team, announced that their own console port availability, but it has a cost attached to it, which as a basic minimum would be $800 a year for a single console. And there's also you know, multiple consoles, and then there's the fact that there's other variations and that sort of thing, so it could cost much more. And many felt the price was a bit too much. And since it's all open source, people were talking about how really anyone can come up with their own porting solution, and now that's happened. Well, okay, for the Nintendo Switch specifically, at least. RAR Lab, or R-A-W-R Lab Games, announced the availability of a free Godot Engine port for Nintendo Switch. Now, this is using the uh, Nintendo Switch authorized developer system. So you have to be already authorized as a Nintendo Switch developer to be able to use this port system, uh, which makes sense because it makes it possible for them to have this vetting done by Nintendo instead of having to do it themselves. So I get why they did that. Uh, so this is completely complimentary access as long as you are authorized as a Nintendo Switch developer. And this source code is distributed under the MIT license, which is pretty cool. And they also say in the announcement that now there is no excuse not to use the Godot engine for making indie games for the Nintendo Switch. And that's pretty awesome. And well done on the RAR Lab games for making this port possible. And also for the Godot engine, because it's, it's fantastic. I mean, well done to the Godot team. If you'd like to learn more about Godot or RAR Labs or this news specifically, you can find links in the show notes. OMG Ubuntu has recently made a blog post about a very interesting product. It's a mini PC that is made to look like the original Nintendo gaming console, the Ayanio AM02. No idea if I said the name of the company right. Uh, if I didn't, which I probably didn't, let me know in the comments how you're supposed to say it. So Ayan Ayanio AM02. Now this is really interesting because it's a mini PC, like a NUC kind of thing, that looks like a Nintendo or an entertainment center, the original NES. It has a four inch touchscreen added to the outside of the case for a variety of different purposes, but that's not the main display that you use. That's just one that's there. And they also made a previous device that looked like an old Macintosh, and it was really cool in its own right, but this is certainly more my vibe anyway because of the retro Nintendo look. It just, it's pretty cool. It supports Linux, by the way. 
That's why it's on the show, but it has to be manually installed. It doesn't come with Linux. And also in their promotional material, they use Debian as a part of their images. So it does suggest that it does support Debian. Don't know how well it supports it yet because there's no benchmarks or anything like that, but it's really interesting, uh, except for the fact that their custom Aya Neo software is Windows only, which is kind of lame, but hey, at least it supports Linux, right? That's good. I want to make it clear though, I'm not a hardware guy. So I'm not recommending this product as I have no idea if it's good or not. But hey, it looks cool. And with, this, with that said, here are the specs for this particular device. The CPU is an AMD Ryzen 7 7840HS. RAM is expandable up to 64 gigs of RAM, and it comes with either 16 or 32 gigs by default. It has a uh, storage allotment of 512 gig or one terabyte by default, and it supports up to eight terabytes. It has a variety of ports. For example, it has a USB 4 Type-C port. It has two USB 3.2 Type-A and two USB 2.0 Type-A. It has display ports and HDMI. It also has a 2-in-1 3.5mm audio jack, which is very rare these days, it seems, on basically every device. Uh, It also comes with Wi-Fi 6E, Bluetooth 5.2, and many other things. Now, the pricing varies depending on the model and how early you buy and whether you want to take advantage of discounted bundles, which adds extra stuff like the 8-bit do controller and others. Now, the bare bones model starts at $439, and this is for the early bird offer on their Indiegogo page. I'll have that linked in the show notes. And then there's a lot of other variations for things like the bare bones model also does not come with an operating system. But if you get another one, it would come with Windows 11, unfortunately. And uh, then you could still get this if you wanted to put it Linux on yourself. Obviously, that would be the best option. There are still, I don't know how many are left right now, but there's at least 50 plus options in the early bird section. So if you want to get one, you can find the link in the show notes for the Indiegogo campaign. There is a new version of the Libvirt project with the release of Libvirt 10.0. For those unfamiliar, Libvirt is a virtualization API slash toolkit developed by Red Hat for managing virtualizations on Linux. Libvirt 10.0 release comes with a number of new features, namely around its QEMU support or Quemu support or Quemu support, depends on how you want to say it. I'm not sure if there's an official pronunciation for that one, but Libvirt 10.0 enables a new post copy dash preempt migration capability, which when used can lead to faster migration of memory pages that the destination tries to read before they are migrated from the source. Also add support for mapping IO threads to vert queues of vert IO BLK devices and automatic resize of block device backed disk to full size of the device and much, much more. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Libvert 10.0, you'll find links in the show notes. The company Huawei, which is most known for their phones, has unveiled an in-house developed operating system called the Harmony OS Next. At their development event, they described the OS as fully independent with a full-stack AI framework. They also decided to claim that their Harmony kernel is three times more efficient than Linux. Yes, specifically pointing this out. Now, I think it's interesting that Huawei is making their own OS and their own kernel, but come on, Huawei, come on. Let's drop the marketing nonsense. Your stuff isn't better than Linux, and you know it. But... I mean, they claimed three times more efficient, but more efficient doing what? They didn't say, by the way. What are the benchmarks for this claim? 
They didn't show any that I could find. And et cetera, et cetera. Also, when they say more efficient than Linux, are you they comparing it to Android's version of Linux, which is pretty bloated, or directly testing on a Linux kernel for a particular distro? And if so, which distro? Uh, we don't know anything about those answers. So there's so many questions about this. I just wanted to cover this on the show because the claim uh, was funny and just kind of amused me. Anyway, besides Linux has so much to do in order to support a huge range of hardware and hardware types. So if you want to have it on embedded devices or a desktop or a laptop or uh, enterprise servers or whatever, you can do that. So if they did make their own kernel that only supports their own hardware, then it should be more efficient and also less useful. Much more than three times. Anyway, the operating system is currently in the developer preview stage, so we don't even have the ability to test it ourselves with a, and they have they planning to release it in Q4 of 2024. So I guess eventually we'll find out if that more efficient thing makes any sense or not. Probably not uh, because what do they, what do they even mean by that? We don't, we don't also, what does full stack AI framework even mean? You know what? Never mind. If you'd like to see the claim for yourself, you can find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show and want to be kept up to date with what's going on in the Linux and open source world, then be sure to subscribe. And of course, remember to like that smash button. If you'd like to support the show and the Tux Digital Network, then consider becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com membership, where you can get a bunch of cool perks like access to patron-only sections of our Discord server and much, much more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux, Linux Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm wearing right now at tuxdigital.com store. Plus, while you're there, there's also a lot of other cool stuff you can get like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and more at tuxdigital.com store. I'll see you next time for another episode of Your Source for Linux News. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tennell. I hope you're doing swell. Be sure to ring that notification bell. And until next time, I bid you farewell.